Yeah, just what you said is happiness is a learned skill. And if you're given this model that says happiness should come effortlessly, then you don't put any effort into learning the skill. And all of the adults in your life are focused on this model of you take the pill and someone else fixes you. It's almost going to the dentist or yeah. going to a car repair shop where someone else does it to you. Let's, oh, your brain is too complicated. You can't manage it yourself. You have to let an expert manage it for you. And then even worse, young people, when they get a quote unquote diagnosis, that gives you a special status and that gives you the social recognition from having this quote unquote disorder. So huge numbers of people are like signing up for, sign me up for that disorder. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 198. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last eight years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. You need to find a new tribe. Social norms are so powerful and that's why connecting with others on the same path will keep you on track and inspire you to keep going. So at Tribe Sober we're all about community. It's a community where everyone strives for an alcohol-free lifestyle and many of our members are already thriving in their sobriety and inspiring others. Each week we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. At that time, I didn't, I thought, oh, I won't really engage on the, on the uh, platform, on the WhatsApp group or whatever. But through my lecturing at VIPs, we'd had to put all our stuff online. And one of the things that I used to say to the students was, you must speak out on the forum, you must post things on the forum. So I decided there and then actually you better kind of walk your own talk here, Claire. So I did actually immerse myself. I actually immersed myself lock, stock and barrel in the tribe sober world. But I extended the challenge straight away in my own head. Once I'd got past about two weeks, I thought, I'm not going to stop at 66 days. I'm going to take it to 100. Then I could see that was just before Christmas. And I thought, no, I'm going to go through Christmas. I'm going to take it to, and I kept extending it. That's how I did it. Yeah. And I journaled, um, I kept the tracker, I listened to a podcast today. I kind of did Tribe Sober Immersion, actually. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. 
My guest this week is Dr. Loretta Breuning, who's the author of The Happy Brain. Loretta was on our podcast back in 2021, and that episode was one of our most popular ones with more than 2,000 downloads. I'll put the link in the show notes. So she's back by popular demand and also because she's just released a new book with an intriguing title. It's called Why You're Unhappy, Biology versus Politics. I asked Loretta to begin by introducing herself. I am the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and I wrote a book called Habits of a Happy Brain. Retrain your brain to boost your serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin level. That's a mouthful, but that sort of explains everything I do. <laughs> I was a college professor for 25 years, and I used to be a big fan of social science. I say that I lived by the book of social science. And then when it didn't really explain life for me and didn't give me solutions that worked, in my opinion, I started digging and I read a lot of psychology and I stumbled on little mentions of how brain chemicals work in animals. And I saw that, wow, this is exactly what we're all feeling and doing. And so I kept going in that direction. It's short. Fantastic. Story. Well done you for making that discovery and actually acting on it. And Thank your work's great. I love your work because it's so empowering. And it teaches us that we can put your phrases at the control panel of our brains and that happiness is actually a learned skill. We, don't, we shouldn't just sit around waiting for happiness to strike because we'll be waiting a long time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and the popular message that you get, and this is the subject of my new book, there's the popular message is based on the work of Rousseau, which suggests that happiness is automatic in the state of nature. And people don't realize how much they've accepted that. And it's beneath the medical model, which says that if you're unhappy, it's a disorder and you can be treated, which implies that you don't have to do anything. It's just normal people get happiness effortlessly. And it's just biologically not true. Whereas, in fact, unhappiness is our default state, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, our brain is very good at producing unhappiness. One reason is because, as we've all heard, I think, that unhappiness is the alert when you see a potential threat. But that doesn't just mean a predator. That means like an obstacle to meeting your needs. And the other thing is that the happy chemicals are only meant to turn on in short spurts because they have a very specific job to do. So if you feel good about something, that's just a short spurt of a good feeling, and it's not meant to last. So if it doesn't last, nothing wrong with you. And that's really the whole point is nothing is wrong with you. Yeah, I was very interested to learn in your new book that those happy chemicals, they metabolize quite quickly because uh, I didn't realize that that's what happened to them. To keep them coming, if that's the right phrase, we need to get things done, don't we, and achieve things, and then we will feel motivated and relatively happy. Achieving things has gotten a sort of a bad image, and there are a lot of beliefs and views that you shouldn't always have to be achieving things. Mm. And so I just want to recognize that this is really a different view, but if you look at it, from the state of nature, 
that a good feeling turns on when a monkey goes and gets food, for example. And then once he's gotten the food, the good feeling turns off. So I'm not saying you have to go get things all the time, but then just be prepared for the good feeling is going to turn off. And really what's the cause of people's bad feeling is if a monkey thinks, I'm not going to be able to get that fruit, then the monkey would feel awful. So it's what we tell ourselves about our activities is creating bad feelings. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So when I read your new book, which I really enjoyed, I was trying to apply what I was reading in there to what happens when a new member joins Tribe Sober. Because my role is, and the people that I work with, we want to keep people motivated. We want to keep them on the track and keep the dopamine triggered because we want them to not only quit drinking, but then we want them to go on and create an alcohol-free lifestyle that they really enjoy. It's not just about not drinking and sitting there being sober because that's Mm. pretty dull. So I tried to apply your teaching to the steps that happens when a new member joins. First of all, I think as someone signs up to Tribe Sober, they should have some good feelings because when they go on our WhatsApp groups, everybody's saying, oh, welcome. And I think there must be a bit of oxytocin going on there because they've joined a community, haven't they? Would that happen? Yes, exactly. Oxytocin is the good feeling of being in a community, but it depends on the individual. It's the feeling of trust and being protected. If a person joins a community, but they think, oh, you don't like me, you're judging me, then that doesn't trigger oxytocin. We're very much creating things or not creating them with our own thoughts, but I'm sure that your group is very good at dealing with this and helping people feel protected. But you have to acknowledge that they're in a difficult situation. They are not good at lowering their guard. That's what oxytocin is, lowering your guard. Absolutely, yeah. But I I like to think that it is a a safe space because we've all been through the same issues. So we really understand each other. And what's beautiful is um, people are so vulnerable on that. I was surprised at the beginning, but I think they're so relieved that they might have found an an answer to something that's been troubling them for many years and that there's other people like them, that they're not broken, there's nothing wrong with them. They've just got into this fix and there is a way out. And that's the dopamine part is I found it. That's if you think of a monkey looking for fruit. It's I've always been looking for the answer to this problem or this feeling. It's, oh, finally I found it. That's a big dopamine spurt. Yeah. So that's the euphoria (laughs) at the beginning. But then the work starts, of course, because sadly we can't just wave a, a wand and make people sober. They have to do the work themselves. So we start people off on a 66 day challenge and we give them a tracker And we say every day, fill in a little square, alcohol-free, if it is alcohol-free, and just see how many sober stretches you can get. And I think in our last conversation, we decided that filling in these little squares would give them a a feeling of achievement and some dopamines the next stage. Absolutely. And again, the big thing from the perspective of my work is that 
You get more dopamine if you have small goals that you can do yeah. repeatedly. And that's exactly what you have. Because if the goal is like this big mountain and then it looks so big that oh, you think you can't climb it. Yeah. 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 We say to people, avoid the F word, the forever word, because it's too overwhelming. When you start on this journey, the thought of never drinking again, it's very daunting. I know. I remember that feeling. Oh, and one more thing, another like achievable goal is I'm going to feel good when I wake up in the morning. So that's mm, something yeah. you can have right now. Exactly. And we, we say to people, play the movie forward. However tempted you are to drink now, just think how great you'll feel in the morning when you wake up. And that works for a lot of people. So on to building a new neural pathway. Something I learned from your new book was that people need to know why they're doing this. And I was really pleased to, to read that because we have an exercise called Finding Your Whys, because I see that as a kind of internal motivator that will keep people on track. And you also said that we need to emphasize what we'll gain rather than what we'll lose. And I think that's very interesting because People don't want to start this journey because they think, I'm going to lose so much. I'll lose my friends. I'll lose my ability to have fun or to relieve my stress. So we have to focus them on what they're going to gain, which is a considerable list as well. Also, I might add, I, I talked to Mike Hardenbrook yesterday, and he talked about how alcohol was his identity. So oh, yeah. without drinking, he would lose his identity. Now, what the book is about is that the brain learns from rewards. The brain is always seeking rewards. So there's nothing shameful or disordered about seeking rewards. That's how our brain is designed to work. So when you let go of one reward, you have to replace it with other rewards. So what many people are given this idea of, like, I'm going to do push-ups, I'm going to eat vegetables, but that's not inherently rewarding. So that's why I talk about how to give yourself healthy rewards, but they still get to be rewarding. If you always wanted to play the guitar, but you never made time for it, this is the time to give yourself that. If you love to watch Netflix, put a timer, and every day you have an alcohol-free day, you say, I'm going to watch Netflix for a half hour. And a half hour in addition to maybe what you already would have watched, mm -hmm. let's say. So then... The next day, you really want to not drink so that you could watch another half hour of that movie. So it's a way to motivate yourself. <laughs> oh, that takes a lot of discipline, doesn't it? I still remember you telling me about your coffee, that you only have a coffee every other day. <laughs> yeah, but I drink tea a lot, so yeah, just <laughs> okay. to be honest. <laughs> By the way, I should explain why I have coffee every other day. Yeah, Because I have this belief that when I have it, it's going to really give me energy and focus. And I feel like if I had it every day, it wouldn't do that. So that's why. But I don't even know if it really does do that. So I'm just saying that you have prior beliefs that something's mm. going to work, but the belief sort of matters. Yeah, I think so. Early sobriety blues, I was thinking about. That happens to a lot of people. It certainly happened to me. And we talked about that on, my, on our last podcast and you gave me that light bulb moment. Do you remember? Because yes. my experience was that I was very happy for my first few months of sobriety. I was in the pink cloud. I thought, oh, wow, this is easy. Why didn't I do it years ago? And I felt so much better physically. Then 
I felt as if I'd fallen off a cliff, felt my mood plummeted and I felt miserable and depressed. And But I was determined not to drink again. So I just white knuckled it somehow and got through another couple of months. Then I started to have this idea to try a sobriety community so we could maybe figure it out together. And then I started cheering up because I had to do a website and do some marketing and talk to people a lot. And then my sobriety blues went and you explained to me that was because I had a project. So now in Tribe Sober, we warn people about these early sobriety blues because it, it wasn't just me. Lots of people go through this and we say, get a project. In fact, to, to new people, we say, start thinking about a project because when your brain feels that the sobriety project is done, which I think the brain's a bit premature here, but <laughs> if after a few months it thinks, okay, we've done that, what next? You'll have something to do. Yeah, so I'm exactly. very grateful to you for explaining that to me because I never would have thought of it. I wouldn't have made that link. But I and think... it was such a good example that I put it in the new book. No, I, <laughs> I was very excited when I saw that. <laughs> and, and just to give an example that's not related to alcohol to show how normal and universal this is, the common example is the post-wedding blues. So a person spending their whole life planning the wedding and probably before, like maybe they were planning for decades, the wedding. <laughs> before they and, met the guy. Yeah. And then all well, finding the guy, dating the guy. So when so much of your life is focused on one goal, another one is like medical school. Maybe you spend a decade trying to get in, trying to pass. So anytime you reach a big goal, then you have no more source of dopamine, no more focus no more mountain to climb. So you have to give yourself a new one. And it needs to be something you actually like to stimulate dopamine rather than just taking some universal advice. Yeah. Yeah. The wedding example is superb and it's, it's universal, isn't it? You've just got to look on Instagram. <laughs> so just the last little example of the Tribe Sober process, once you've got over your early sobriety blues, actually right from the beginning, you've got this ongoing support group because we are wired to be social, aren't we? So a lot of us, we really miss our drinking buddies because they just don't really understand what we're doing and they tell us we're boring, but we carry on doing it. So we lose touch with some people and we really need to be connected to a new community. So that's what we try to provide. And because we've been going for eight years now, we've got people at all stages of the journey. We've got me with my eight years, and then we've got people with five years, four years, all the way down. And I think that's great for the new people because we encourage them. Maybe a brand new person, my eight years, they couldn't relate to that, but they'll meet someone that's three months sober and they'll be able to get inspired by that person. And also the people in our group, they all talk about their projects now. In fact, we've, we're doing a page on our website, Members Projects, just to inspire people. Because if your entire life you've been spending your free time just drinking with your friends, you, you might have forgotten what you'd like to do as a child. You might not even remember. Exactly. So reading your book, that reminded me again of the mirror neurons, because mm -hmm. isn't that what happens when you see someone 
that's a few months sober and you think, she looks, she seems quite happy with that. Maybe I could do this thing. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. very good. Very good. We're always learning from other people through our mirror neurons. We learn when they get rewarded and we also learn when they suffer pain. And it tells us it's like a shortcut of like how a monkey learns to crack open a nut is they stand near another monkey and without conscious thought, it literally activates the circuits. But I wanted to mention something. So again, oxytocin is about feeling protected. So it works with a positive focus group exactly like you mentioned. But alternatively, if I join a group, not for alcohol, but just for anything in the world, if everyone in that group is negative and talks about how awful the world is, then this is really a lot of groups are that way. And so I feel worse and worse about interacting with the world. So this is the common enemy thing. In nature, animals would rather spread out because when they're too close together, they have conflict over food. But when they spread out, they risk being eaten by a predator. So the only time they gather very closely is when there's an immediate predator threat. So many groups keep themselves together by talking constantly about the enemy. And anyone can listen to any group they're in and see how much people talk about the enemy. So it's just good to be aware of that dynamic. And then the other thing that you mentioned, because I've been in a lot of groups with this, if you join Tribe Sober and your old drinking buddies don't want to be with you anymore, I've known these people for years. Why don't they want me anymore? It would be good to talk about that because I know that this is like a real sadness. Rejection is a very survival focus thing from the animal brain perspective. And so we really have to say, okay, they're just a mammal and everyone wants to be in the one-up position. That's the other dynamic of the mammal brain that I talk about. And if you're sober and they're not, they're feeling like they're in the one-down position, even though you didn't consciously put them down. So just got to accept that. Yeah, that's so true, Loretta, because lots of us, we say to our friends, cool, you drink, I don't care. But they still feel judged somehow, because, especially the ones that do have a problem, obviously. <laughs> so it's very tricky. They're the worst ones. <laughs> okay, we've talked a lot about dopamine. So tell us what dopamine is and what we need to know about it. Sure. So dopamine is the basic reward chemical that releases your reserve tank of energy when you see a way to meet your needs. Now, in the modern world, this is already subjective because food is so easily available to us. But if we understand our ancestors not too long ago, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. So they had to invest a lot of effort just to get enough food to survive, look for water, look for firewood. So they were always looking for that next thing. If I see an oasis in the distance, oh, I'm going to get water. I feel good. And that also releases the energy. So it's the anticipation of something that meets your needs. So in the modern world, when I already have my physical needs met, then meeting them doesn't stimulate dopamine because the brain doesn't waste it on something you already have. It's a new way to meet your needs. So that's why we get so excited about things that will meet 
our social needs. And that's why maybe sometimes people even overreact to like little things like getting invited to a party. Not getting invited to a party is such a central thing in our ups and downs. Yeah, the the anticipation. And I think for those of us that were dependent on alcohol, I, I still remember, for example, I'd come home from work and I'd open the door and I'd be excited because <laughs> I was just, before I took my coat off, the bottle of wine would be out of the fridge. And that anticipation, it's almost like you preempt it. It's been going on probably since 4 p.m. until 6 p.m. Exactly. And that's why it's so important to give yourself another reward. Otherwise, you're yeah. not getting the dopamines. So to say that this is a natural thing, because so much of what we read now, they're attacking dopamine, especially in the conversation around social media. They say it gives you too much dopamine. I, I don't think that's a good interpretation. It's like unhealthy dopamine, dopamine stimulators can be replaced by healthier ones. That's it. Yeah, I remember you talking on the last podcast about the distraction list and the way that you would listen to some comedy on YouTube 10 minutes now and again, just to perk you up a bit if you are feeling a bit flat. That's great. So a new phrase that I learned from your latest book was jackpot dopamine. <laughs> some of us, we drink and we get quite a big high the very first time we drink. Would you call that a jackpot dopamine? Absolutely. But it's much bigger than that because it's not just the alcohol. It's the whole situation going on around it. And that's very individual. So for one person, let's say hypothetically that you have maybe a sad family, but then when the alcohol comes out, everybody's happy and has a big smile on their face. So that's the jackpot. For another person, let's say it was their first party and their first moment of social acceptance with adolescent peers. That's a jackpot because the animal brain is very focused on reproduction and anything linked to it. Let's say another example. Let's say your spouse leaves you and you're sitting alone in an apartment with nothing to do and the alcohol distracts you. That's a jackpot just because the bad feeling is wiped out when you have something else to focus on. Uh, not totally wiped out, but distracted from so whatever was going on in that first moment of relief that you got from the alcohol, that's the jackpot. And when you go back and look for that, then that can help you understand the empty space that you now have to refill with something else. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. So can you explain what happens in the brain when we drink consistently for years? I drank for 20 years. So do I have a deep neural pathway? Yeah, absolutely. And once again, this is universal. Whatever habits we have, it's a deep neural pathway. However, it's important to know that the biggest pathways in our brain are built in childhood because that's when we have a lot of myelins. So our myelinated pathways are, for example, 
speaking my native language because I wired that in when I was young and it comes to me effortlessly. So with alcohol, it's not just the alcohol itself, but all the rituals around it. Like you said, when you got home from work, it's okay, I'm going to do this and that's all myelinated pathways. So if I'm not going to drink, I get home from work because I don't know what to do. I have this empty space. So that's when we can create new habits. And that's what my book is about, is like how to create a new habit. Yeah, because the drinking pathway is already connected to happy chemicals, isn't it? Now we've got to build a new alcohol-free pathway. I really like your jungle analogy. Can you explain that, please? Sure. So if you think that your brain is a jungle of neurons, and if you have a paved road through the jungle, then it's so effortlessly to take the paved road that you take it without consciously choosing that. But paved roads often go to places that are not so nice. So let's say you want to go to some beautiful new place in the jungle and you have to hack a path, a new path. And it's so much work to hack a new path through the jungle that it takes 100% of your energy, very slow. And then the next day, if you want to take that same path, it has grown over, so it's still a lot of work. But if you take the same path every day, then it gets easier and easier. And it's still just a little path rather than a paved road, but that's what maturity is. You could see the little paved path. You could clear a path instead of automatically taking the paved road, and you know that little cleared path goes to a much nicer place. Yeah, it's the destination that's key, isn't it? <laughs> and the thing about pathways, someone like me, for example, with my drinking pathway, if I started trying to drink moderately again, the chances are that my previous behaviors would just uh, revert, isn't it? Um, because they, it's still there, the pathway. It's, it's still yeah. a big pathway. And yeah. we don't, again, we don't consciously choose to use our old pathways. It's just like speaking in your native language. Your electricity yeah, yeah. flows into the path of least resistance. That's how the brain is designed to work. Yeah. Because we do hear about people that have been sober for decades and they relapse. It always used to surprise me that but I think I understand it a bit better. So to understand why they relapsed, again, it's probably not just the alcohol, but whatever went on in their life was a yeah. situation that was really parallel to whatever was going on when they first started drinking, whether it was the rejection or the partying or whatever situation that was. So thinking about building new ways, we've got billions of extra neurons ready and waiting, haven't we? And we build these new pathways by repetition. Your learning a language example comes to mind. What else can we do to build a new pathway? So I use the example of animal trainers. So when an animal trainer is trying to teach an animal a new trick, you can't give a big trick and then a big reward because the animal just can't do the big trick. You have to give them tiny steps and then tiny rewards for tiny steps. And that's repeated. But it's breaking the new behavior down into small steps. A simple example would be if you have a person in early sobriety and you tell them get a project and they, I don't know how to get a project. I don't know what project to get. Say, okay, today you're going to think of three possible projects 
and spend 10 minutes doing internet searches on each of them. So you're going to set a timer for 10 minutes three times. And then after that, you're going to do something that you love. Bake yourself a cake and then give the cake to someone else and only eat one slice or something like something fun afterwards. So then the excitement of the reward infuses the step that you're a little uncomfortable about. Mm, that's a great idea. I think we'll have to add that to our repertoire because <laughs> people do say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to choose. I often suggest that they go to meetup.com. I don't know if you know that. I say you don't have to go and meet anybody, but there's lists of all these activities that you never think of. So have a look at those. But yeah, and then spend the 10 minutes exploring. And also udemy.com, all those courses you can do. Neuroplasticity is one of them. I know since the other day, neuroscience, and there's so many courses. So yeah, I love that idea of internet searching three different projects because uh, we also refer people to our life coach as well and we say we say sit down with a coach and just being in a situation with somebody else really listening to you actively and it will bring ideas to your mind just coaching is incredible like that we it's like having a thinking partner really you come up with things that you never thought about before Let's uh, think about early sobriety for a moment because people get very emotional in early sobriety. I remember bursting into tears regularly for absolutely no reason at all. And you say in the book that our emotional brain and our verbal brain are not on speaking terms. So that might explain why I didn't know what I was crying about. (laughs) Our verbal brain is unique to humans and it's relatively recent. Our emotional brain is the core of our brain. And so many of these psychologies, they're like, oh, stay away from your emotions. But that's literally impossible because your emotional brain is in the middle. Your human brain is on top. And so your human brain does not connect to your body. Your human brain connects to your emotional brain, which connects to your body. So you literally can't do anything until you get your emotional brain to put it in (laughs) gear and to agree. So So you can't um, bypass it. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Now, the emotional brain is inherited from animals, and animals can't talk. So that's why your emotional brain can't tell you why it's turning on the emotions. The reason it turns them on is because a situation is similar to something that happened to you in your past, and the emotions of the past are turning on in that similar situation. And it could be like releasing the way you felt before you started drinking, because drinking was a way to push away bad feelings. So once you stop drinking, all those bad feelings come up. But now you're better able to manage them because when you started pushing them away, you were maybe young and inexperienced. So you could say, Ah, this crying is a good thing because it's just, I'm just letting it out rather than holding it in. But if you decide, oh, this must be a bad thing, then you give some bad explanation. So it really helps to just say, it's like sweat. It's like Mm. just letting it out. Yeah. Yeah. I used to find 
writing helped me a lot when I was very emotional. I would journal about what I was feeling and try to process the emotions. Rather than looking for quick hacks to spark our dopamine, it, it would be better to invest our efforts in steps to meet our needs, which may lead to a feeling of purpose. I guess that's more about finding a project and finding a project that stimulates us. But then you said that a purpose is quite different from a project. Can you explain that? That's sure. That's your book. Sure. First, when, when I say steps to meet your needs, needs is very subjective. And yet what our need is what's going to stimulate my dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. So my um, oxytocin, we all do want a support group, but we all want social recognition. That's the serotonin piece. Now, on the one hand, we all know that if you do crazy things to chase after social recognition, you can end up in trouble in the long run. But if you do nothing about your need for social recognition, then you may end up feeling down. And so that's why I talk about being honest with yourself that I want social recognition and that's natural that every mammal, like if you watch nature videos, animals are constantly vying for social dominance in the group. So this is a natural impulse. And when I say steps that meet your needs, when all your other needs are met, social recognition is the thing that drives you. And that's probably what your project is going to be about. And you could see that people's projects help them get social recognition. And there's really nothing bad about it. Now, when we talk about purpose versus a project, Many people talk about purpose in this very vague, abstract way with a lot of virtue language where you feel like I have to save the world and I'm going to save the world because I'm so virtuous and it's all nice, but there's no action steps. <laughs> and without action steps, you're not going to stimulate dopamine. You're not going to reach the goal of getting the social recognition. And then you're going to probably end up feeling bitter about it. And the other part of it is if you think I have to save the world, you're telling your inner mammal, my needs don't count. I have to meet other people's needs. That's the message that we get from a lot of these purpose-related speeches. And a lot of people feel bitter. Like, how come it's never my turn? How come I always have to meet other people's needs? So it's really important to consciously see the link between whatever this project is, which could be something that helps others if, if you choose that, but you're going to consciously acknowledge your own needs. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I was just reflecting on what you said about the self-esteem, the social needs, and it made me think of Maslow's hierarchy because that's how that's based, isn't it? The physiological at the bottom and then gradually it goes to self-esteem status, I think he calls it, and then self-actualization. Yes, but I, I have a little problem with Maslow because at the top he has self-actualization. Mm -hmm. And this is to me, like I spent my whole life with college professors, so they are a little, let's say, grandiose. And so here's this pyramid and like I'm sitting at the top of this pyramid self-actualized like a Buddha, which implies that you don't have to do anything because you've achieved this state of per perfection. And I just don't think the brain works that way. You have to be involved in interacting with the world and you have to have a sense of effectiveness about your interactions with the world. 
And then even when you are effective, then you've achieved that goal and you have to put another goal on there. That's how the brain works. So there's never going to be this state of perfection where you don't need to do anything. No, no sitting in the ivory tower. (laughs) Exactly. Get out there. Exactly. So let's talk about the book. Talk about the title first. Okay, it's called Why You're Unhappy, Biology Versus Politics. And as you said, it's about the idea that our brain easily creates unhappiness, but we're given this impression through the disease model of mental health that happiness comes automatically. And if you're not happy, then something is wrong with you and something is wrong with society, and then society should fix it for you. And this focuses you on just sitting around doing nothing, waiting for society to make you happy. And that gets in the way of you taking the action that's necessary to stimulate your happy chemicals. The other thing I explained, my other books, when I talk about dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin, a lot of people have interpreted this as like, we can have this state of bliss, which is so wrong. (laughs) So that's why I really wanted to write for each chemical the bad side of each happy chemical. And the bad side is why it only comes at a price. And that's why you only get little bits of it, because if it was on all the time, that wouldn't work or you'd pay some terrible price. So that helps us reconcile with why we don't have them all the time. And animals don't have them all the time. And hunter-gatherers don't have them all the time. And children don't have them all the time because they have a very specific job and they're only meant for short spurts. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think your work should be in schools. And then we hear about mental health crisis, don't we, amongst young people at the moment. And I'm sure if they understood (laughs) your work, they would at least be empowered rather than sitting there thinking, I'm depressed. And then they go to a doctor and they get antidepressants and... Do you want to talk about antidepressants for a moment? I don't take a position either way, but yeah, just what you said is happiness is a learned skill. And if you're given this model that says happiness should come effortlessly, then you don't put any effort into learning the skill. And all of the adults in your life are focused on this model of you take the pill and someone else fixes you. It's almost going to the dentist or yeah. going to a car repair shop where someone else does it to you. Let's, oh, your brain is too complicated. You can't manage it yourself. You have to let an expert manage it for you. And then even worse, young people, when they get a quote unquote diagnosis, that gives you a special status and that gives you the social recognition from having this quote unquote disorder. So huge numbers of people are like signing up for, sign me up for that disorder. Yeah. Tell us how people can follow you and learn more, Loretta. Sure. My website is innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And I have lots of different social platforms that you'll see there. And I have a free five-day happy chemical jumpstart at the bottom. If you put your email address, you get one email a day for five days on each of the chemicals. And you'll learn how you have power to rewire them. And also there's information on all of my books. And I have lots of videos and a course. 
Thanks so much, Loretta. That was fascinating. I've learned so much from you over the years. Let's pull out some key points. We agreed that happiness was a learned skill rather than an automatic right. Our default state leans towards unhappiness, triggered by the fact that we're on a constant lookout for threats. To experience happiness, we need to learn how to trigger our happy brain chemicals and then to accept that this feeling is transient and it will not last. Because just like animals, our brains are wired for survival rather than happiness. Small, achievable goals will help to maintain our dopamine levels. That's why downloading and using our annual tracker to mark off your alcohol-free days works so well. Every time you fill in a square because you've had an alcohol-free day, you'll be triggering a dopamine hit. If you'd like one of our trackers, then just drop me a line. Membership at tribesober.com We talked about the rationale for teaching Loretta's work in schools as many young people are self-identifying with depression as they expect happiness to be automatic. And let's face it, social media does play a role in that. In fact, we all need to understand the brain's chemical processes which can lead to greater self-management and personal growth. I think Loretta says we need to learn how to sit at the control panel of our brain Loretta emphasised the importance of replacing the perceived reward of alcohol with something else we find pleasurable. I loved her suggestion that we reward ourselves with an extra session on Netflix every time we hit a sobriety milestone. We talked about the early sobriety blues and how a project can prevent that low mood which often strikes in early sobriety. For more on that subject, please listen to Loretta's previous podcast. I'll put the link in the show notes. We talked about the value of a support group like Tribe Sober, which creates social connections, releases oxytocin and provides a sense of protection. So if you're looking for a support group to enable you to quit drinking and start living, then please go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. One of the many benefits of joining Tribe Sober is that you'll find people at all stages of the journey. You'll come across people who are thriving in their sobriety and your mirror neurons will enable you to learn from them. They can be role models for you. Loretta's book is brilliant and I strongly recommend it. It's called Why You're Unhappy, Biology Versus Politics and it's available on Amazon. And the book challenges the disease model of mental health. It suggests that happiness is a learned skill and critiques societal expectations regarding effortless happiness. You can connect with Loretta by visiting her website, innermammalinstitute.org. I'll put the link in the show notes. She also offers a free five-day happy chemical jumpstart, providing insights into how we rewire our brain chemicals. So thank you, Loretta. And let me finish by reading out a couple of messages from one of our chat rooms. I picked on the guys group this time. Lloyd had read an article that I'd published recently, and he said, Thanks for sharing your article, Janet. 
I particularly enjoyed where you said, if you give up alcohol for December, you can actually claw back a lot of time. Time that is usually devoted to planning the drinking, doing the drinking and getting over the drinking. I can personally resonate with that. Over the past few years, I've wasted so much time. I've forgotten to buy birthday presents and engagement presents because I was too drunk in the weeks leading up to these events. It makes me feel pretty bad knowing the reason why and having blamed it on work or life busyness or money pressure, but actually it was the booze. I'm so looking forward to being present in these moments going forward. Oh, thanks, Lloyd. You got a nice response from David, who said, Don't be too hard on yourself on the past. Alcohol was a way of coping with work, life, busyness and money pressure. But the analogy that I love is that alcohol is like a faulty on-off switch. It can turn off stress and pressure quickly, but it all comes running back eventually. Sobriety is more like a volume control. You learn ways that dial the stress and pressure of life down one notch at a time. But that dial down is lasting. Wow, thanks, David. That's such a great analogy. And congratulations on your first soberversary. Let's get a last word in from Darren. Clarity is one thing I thought I had when I was drinking, but it's now one of the most amazing benefits from not drinking. You'll get there, Lloyd. It takes time, but slowly over time, you'll get stronger and stronger. In fact, drinking just clouds the fullness of life. Be gentle on yourself too, because alcohol doesn't allow us to be gentle on ourselves. Wow, thanks, Darren. That's that's so true, isn't it? Great to see you guys connecting and sharing. So if you'd like to connect and get inspired by our awesome tribe members, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. So that's it from me. Thanks so much for listening and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.